0: Hello all and welcome yet to another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast. I am Dr. Cole and myself and Dr. Fitz host this show. And we go over common orthopedic topics and today we have a bonus episode for you all today. I know we normally do one weekly but this one you have two weekly. And this episode is actually an episode we recorded quite a while ago uh, featuring Dr. Joshua Vickers and we talk about periprosthetic infections, periprosthetic joint infections to be specific. And Dr. Vickers did a great job going over, we went over everything in in great detail, actually listening back to it, I was like, man, that was a good episode. And uh, just a little bit more about Dr. Vickers, he did his residency at the University of Florida in Gainesville, and he did his fellowship at Emory University in adult reconstruction surgery. And again, we talk about periprosthetic, uh, periprosthetic infections. And the reason this took a little bit of a while to come out is we actually don't have an accompanying PowerPoint for this because we recorded this a while ago. And you have to give, forgive us, some of the audio at times gets a little bit iffy and there's some sparks here and there. But we decided this was such good info that we wanted to put it out anyway. So without further ado, I hope you all enjoy our episode with Dr. Vickers.
1: You are now listening to
2: Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring Doctors Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole.
0: Dr. Vickers, welcome so much to the Nailed It Ortho podcast. Uh, I know we've been, been trying to schedule this for a while. I'm so glad we finally got you and we're able to sit down and talk about some periprosthetic infections and kind of kind of inform the people today um, of this topic. So again, thanks so much for being on.
1: Randall, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to come on. I'm excited to hear more uh, about what you guys are doing, and I'm, I'm, uh, it's a pleasure to be a part of it. Oh, perfect! And uh, so, what we kind
0: of like to do is is just start off with some general questions, getting to know you. And uh, this this first question is a question I came up with. I don't think we've asked yet, but um, what is your
1: favorite movie of all time? Uh, probably Shawshank Redemption. I think uh, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of really iconic parts of that movie that I remember from. You know my youth and it's been a movie that's really withstood the test of time i think in a lot of people's eyes but definitely in mine so it's, it's really a great movie for as
2: uh huge and
1: major as that movie is i have
2: never seen it from beginning to end and i mean it's it's even on tv all the time but i've never seen that movie from in its entire entirety yet you gotta watch it <laughs>
0: yeah, me. <laughs> me either um all right, cool. Kind of like, what's the story you know, behind you going into joints? Like, is this something that you always knew you wanted to do or, you know, what, what made you want to do that?
1: Yeah. Um, no, I didn't always know I wanted to do it. I, you know, I've, I've, i discovered orthopedics in medical school and I kind of found my way into the field. Um, and I was accepted into residency. I didn't know what I wanted to do and I, I rotated through all of the different subspecialties in much the same way that you guys are doing now. And, um, yeah, you know, I had my eyes open. I actually didn't make a decision until I was in my third, towards my end of my third year in residency because I wanted to keep an open mind. And honestly, I really enjoyed everything I was doing. I enjoyed sports. I enjoyed trauma. I enjoyed tumor. Um, but I, what I found is that my personality was really more kind of in line with the arthroplasty world, if that makes sense. Um, yeah. I kind of, I liked the um, constant you know, work towards trying to perfect the surgery. I like the I like the custom carpentry nature of it. Uh I like that you had straightforward cases and then you had extremely difficult cases. Um I liked uh outpatient surgery, I liked inpatient surgery. And so I think it um I think it lent itself to all the things that I found most interesting and um wonderful about orthopedics. No, it's smooth, I like it. Okay.
2: Yeah, you know, that's actually um, what the reverse of kind of how I got into ortho. Uh, when I was in college, I was a physical therapy technician. So I was kind of exposed to the uh, adult reconstruction side first. That was the first thing I ever knew about orthopedics. Uh, so it actually grabbed my uh, attention the most and kind of made me go to med school and learn more about the field. Um, and you, you, you mentioned that you, you do like the, you know, being able to just kind of hone in on a particular type of surgery and just really good great at it. But I was going to ask, because I know some some physicians do it and some don't, do, do you have any, I guess, like take call anywhere or anything like that? Or any of your colleagues take call where they are still handling some just regular trauma orthopedics as well in between, in the mix of their adult reconstruction practice also?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think, yeah, I think most adult reconstruction um, surgeons will take call to some extent. And so certainly the amount of variation within the surgeries that you perform from that call will depend in large part upon two things. Number one, your comfort level with the surgeries that you have in front of you in the cases you have in front of you, but also number two, the support that you have around you. So if you're at a trauma center and you have uh, a trauma surgeon at your disposal who is more than eager to take care of those cases then you may not do as much of the extra stuff or if you've got a hand handover extremity surgeon who's in your practice. Um, the Where I am is in a, a rural area of, of South Georgia and so you know if things come into our hospital and I feel like the patient is uh, you know stable enough to have surgery in our hospital and doesn't need uh, the services that a level one trauma center would provide then then I'll care of the patient here. So my practice is not just star it's really a lot of general orthopedics as well.
2: Okay. Well uh, yeah, that's good to know. I know, like you say, some, there's usually, you know, some call aspect as well. So that I know that can add a little variety to to the mix of things as well. But I think we could probably hop on to the case and uh, it is a adult reconstruction case today. So we can leave the trauma behind for now. Um, <laughs> But so what we have is today, say we're uh, at the hospital and a 65-year-old female with a history of a left uh, total knee arthroplasty about five months ago comes in today because uh, she's been having increased pain and swelling in that left knee. Uh, She's unable to ambulate and has has, has some noticeable uh, erythema and swelling to the left knee. And at this time, the patient is afebrile. you know, how, how would you go about the, uh, I guess we could start at the physical exam to kind of have an idea of what's going on with this patient.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think this is a great presentation because oftentimes in, in residency or if you're on call and you're not a joint replacement surgeon, this is kind of how these patients present to you. Um, and so let me just start by saying, this is a, this is a hard topic to cover in a short amount of time, but we'll, we'll do our best. I think there's a lot of information, uh, that's kind of, uh, what which you what which you'd consider to be um, kind of elementary stuff that you should just know they should just be part of your vocabulary when you 're taking care of these patients and then there 's more esoteric data that may that to me seems to be constantly changing and that is evolving even as we speak so we 'll try and try and focus our discussion and kind of the way we walk through the cases in a way that lends itself uh, to um, the primary audience of the podcast and especially as people are preparing for boards. Um, but I think, I think the most important thing is really trying to get a history. And before you even start the physical exam, these, these patients have a history. They've had surgery before. Um, they, you know, they've, they've met another orthopedic surgeon. They had a diagnosis before they had surgery. They had surgery. Uh, potentially, they had surgeries before they even had their arthroplasty. Um, you know, so you want to know how they got to the place they're in, not just how they're doing now. And you want to know how, what their experience was like and, and how um, – how their follow-up went. So I, I typically will start with kind of open-ended questions, uh, and then and then try and narrow down on on really the the story of the symptoms. So the first thing I want to know is just ask the patient to tell me about their uh, their knee. If this patient had had a total knee, and they're having pain there. I would say, you know, tell me a little bit more about your knee replacement. And my hope is that they would not only tell me about the pain they're having now, but then I could I could um, go back in history a little bit and say, what was the first surgery you had? How many surgeries have you had on your knee? Um, You know, what was the diagnosis? Why did they do a total knee replacement for you? Uh, You know, did your knee replacement, was it uh, successful in your eyes? Did you have any complications? Did you have a period of time where your knee was not painful, but now it is painful? Or has it always been painful from the moment you had the knee replacement? Uh, did, Did your wound seal quickly? Did it drain? Those are all kind of questions that, to me, uh, are extremely important in helping me frame not only what the current problem is, but how acute that problem may be.
0: Right. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. I definitely think uh, uh, the history uh, something that we just we just overlooked right there, and I mean, and, and went straight to the physical. But yeah, I definitely definitely agree with that, and I think that's an important part of uh, of the workup. So once we've gotten a proper history, we say, you know, this patient tells us, "Hey, sir." It's her first total knee arthroplasty that was done. She just had really bad arthritis and she didn't have any complications and she came with these symptoms. I guess now, what would you be looking for uh, on a physical exam or what are some things that you want to make sure that you don't
1: miss? Sure. Sure. So um, when we get done with the physical exam, let's, let's come back to the past medical history because I think that's real important too. And I know as orthopedic surgeons, we, uh, we tend to overlook that. We, we just kind of look at the sheet the patient filled out in clinic and we go right in and talk about the problem, we'll come back to that. But for physical exam, I think, um, you know, it's extremely important to do uh, a gait assessment and that can be done, you know, as the patient's walking into the room. If you're in the emergency room, typically you're gonna have to get them up and, and try and walk them, uh, or it can be done at the end of your exam. But at some point during your exam, you want to watch the patient, try and bear weight on the extremity. Uh, and, and you want to kind of take note of how, how easy it is or how difficult it is for the patient to do that. I think, um, Additionally, you wanna, you wanna get the patient into an, onto an exam table. If you're in clinic, you wanna get them out of the chair and onto an exam table. If they're in the emergency room, uh, I, would, I would encourage you to you know uh, get them in a position where you can easily examine the extremity. Um, and, and then once you've done that, you wanna look at the wound, obviously. Is this a, a sealed wound or is there a draining sinus? That, those are two totally different um, knee replacement patients there. And then you wanna know um, if there's any erythema, warmth, drainage, uh, swelling, ecchymosis. Does it look like they've had a recent trauma? Any discoloration to the skin? These are all things that I think uh, that you're just gonna pick up on by looking at the patient. You know, you're looking at the wound before you touch the patient. Um, This is, you know, you should see this. And then obviously you want, what what I like to do is try and get everything off of their feet, off of their uh, lower extremity, so that I can see the, the entire lower extremity. Do they have other wounds? Do they, have, do they have, does it look like they have a problem healing in general? Um, do they have vasculitis uh, issues? Do they have dependent edema? Uh, these, are, these are patient populations that you'll see that have increased risk for periprosthetic joint infections. And so, certainly, if a patient presents and they have multiple of these clinical exam findings, then your suspicion for this diagnosis should be raised. And then, you know, you want to do the typical things you want to palpate in the leg. Upate the knee you want to feel for an effusion you want to feel for fluctuance you want to feel anatomic landmarks you want to check for motion and stability and stiffness and and uh, i think these are really important clinical exam findings which will help you understand how this knee replacement has been functioning for a patient if they have a huge red warm swollen knee that has a very limited range of motion then certainly that's a patient who's the you know Infection goes higher on your differential list. And if you see a patient who's got a pretty quiescent appearing knee, the, the skin is, you know, normal color. It's not warm or hot. They've got, you know, full range of motion, zero to 120. The incision looks pristine. There's no discoloration. Um, and they have a little bit of point tenderness somewhere. You know, th- those are quite different patients.
0: Okay. Okay. Um. Yeah, I think that was great. I think that that definitely covered, you know, things we want to look for out in physical exam. And I know you mentioned past medical history, which we which we skipped over. But yeah, what what would you like to I guess um, uh, point out some of the things that we should be on the lookout for in the past history?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the same things that you counsel patients on in clinic before undergoing a total joint replacement, as Past medical or medical comorbidities that increase the risk for periprosthetic infection are the same things that you want to look for in patients who are presenting with an inflamed appearing total joint. You want to know are they diabetic, and if they are, what is their hemoglobin A1c? Um, do they have any cardiac histories, pulmonary histories? Are they do they have a bleeding or clotting disorder? Are they prone to getting uh, hemarthroses? Do they have dental issues? Have they recently? had a, a procedure, a dental procedure or a GI procedure. Um, are they, again, are they currently on an anticoagulant? I um, know I'm kind of going all over the place, but these are, I think these are all really important past medical history, um, factors, which can significantly increase the risk that a patient will develop a periprosthetic infection. And so a patient who presents, who's a smoker or obese or an alcoholic or an IV drug user, uh, who has an immunosuppressed, uh, status these these are patients who go you know infection goes way up on my list Mm, okay
2: okay yeah this is actually like uh very good uh as a intern and it is it seems kind of surprising but uh dealing with infections just overall i mean it it just kind of has always been kind of difficult for me to know what to call it and how to go about you know getting to diagnosis, the final diagnosis. So all these questions are, uh, I can see these in very helpful in the clinical setting. So it, this is going really well already.
1: Um, well, so I'll, we
2: both- I'll tell you,
1: it's, it's really hard for me too. <laughs> and I'll, I'll tell you anyone <laughs> who says diagnosing the infection is really easy. All the time is, is lying to you. It, lying. There, are, there are cases that are very challenging to diagnose and it's really hard to know, uh, what to call, um, what to call it sometimes. And, and sometimes you just have to, you know, you have to throw your sword down in the sand or draw a line in the sand and say, this is what it is. You know, this right. is how we're going to treat it. And you have to make a decision. And, and, you know, we are getting better at making this diagnosis as a community of surgeons. And I think that certainly the work that Parvizy and, and a lot of his colleagues have done in, in helping us understand how to diagnose infections and the work that's being done to help us get towards, um, you know, PCR, and we can talk about that a little bit more later, but the way that we're obtaining information and diagnosing patients is becoming a little more scientific and a little less rudimentary, but I, I, I think that even still, it's very hard, and um, and as an intern, it's even harder because you're not the one ultimately that has to put the knife to the skin. You know, you will eventually, you'll be that person. You'll be the one seeing them in, in clinic and, and counseling them and making, the, and making the decision and then following them up, but when you, when you're kind of the middleman it's a little hard it's a little hard to uh to make that call and, and ultimately that falls to your tending. but i I think that it's hard for everybody
2: right absolutely i agree i know I've had a few that i because you know you have to you have to go back and uh you know sign this stuff out and you kind of have to lead. you know you have to at least have some sense of a diagnosis. And I, I mean, my way walking back towards my attendant, I'm like, all right, I got to think of something, which way I'm gonna go with this. And <laughs> uh yeah, this is, this is really helpful. So that's, this is a, already a big plus for me. Um So let's say this patient, we've gotten a, a good history, uh, a good past medical history, asking all the right questions to kind of get a better, uh, picture of the uh, of what's going on. Uh, we've done the physical exam, and we we're, we're concerned. So at this point, what what kind of images do you think you would uh, look for to to kind of better help you get to the the diagnosis?
1: Yeah, great question. I think you know, in the world of arthroplasty, we spend a lot of time looking at looking at radiographs. We don't do a lot of advanced imaging, especially not in helping us diagnose a periprosthetic joint infection. Most, I would say 99, 98% of our imaging is going to be radiographs. And, and so things you're looking at, looking for there. Uh, and, and the first thing, let me just say it's extremely helpful if you have serial radiographs. So having, having uh, separate x-rays at various time points So, an x ray from the immediate post op period, an x ray from the six, um, from the three month post op visit, and again, at a six month or nine month interval, whatever you can get is helpful in in trying to determine what's happening to those implants over time. And and are they moving? Are they migrating? And that helps you understand if there's loosening of the components. Right. Additionally, if you don't have that, things you're going to be looking for are lucency or lucent lines around the implant. And I think as you look at more and more radiographs of total hip and total knee implants, you'll get much better at At uh, understanding or knowing what's normal and what's not. And certainly uh, You know, you want to look for fractures. You want to look for any cyst formation. You can tell on a radiograph of a knee if there's a large effusion. Uh, You may not be able to see a small one or appreciate that, but you would be able to appreciate a large effusion. And then if you see signs of heterotopic ossification or if you see, um, you know, sometimes when I, as a, as a joint replacement surgeon, seeing a lot of joint replacements, I can kind of see radiographic findings, you know, that kind of clue me in that this total joint replacement may have been a struggle, you know, whether, whether it was that the patient, probably had severe disease to begin with and it was a hard case and it may have taken longer or that this is a revision case and that you know they they've had multiple surgeries and that increases their risk or that you know the implants aren't positioned perfectly or they're over or undersized things that may that may clue me in that the primary surgeon or or the you know the person taking care of this patient may have had slightly more difficulty doing the case and 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 ultimately that comes back to length of OR time and increased risk for surgical infection. So um, those are, those are all things that I'm looking for.
0: Right. And I was going to ask, cause, cause you just mentioned it. um, Are there, if you just got had a film of a, of a revision up there, can you tell? And if there are like, what are some things that you look for? I'm I'm just interested now and how, how you'd be able to see or be like, Oh, okay. This, this person definitely had a revision or, uh, or, you know, this is a primary. Are there some telltale signs that you look for? Yeah,
1: absolutely. I think, you know, with the primary, primary implants for total knee typically are going to be non-stemmed. So they're going to be a standard base plate on the tibia. Uh, they'll be cemented in place. Uh, there are, you know, obviously you could do an uncemented tibia, uh, but they'll, they'll be usually be unstemmed and uh, there'll be a CR or a PS type insert uh, polyethylene insert with, with a matching femoral component. You, you know, for most primary total joint replacements, obviously there are exceptions. You you won't see a lot in the way of augmentation. Um, and, you know, it's kind of hard to distill <laughs> all this into a short answer, but I would just say that as you do more and more uh, revision arthroplasty cases, you get more familiar with what those revision arthroplasty implants are. And so yeah. pretty much every manufacturer or the major manufacturers have their own revision sets, and it's a separate implant, uh, usually of the same um, style and form factor as their primary implant system, but it has more bells and whistles. Again, they're dimmed on both sides. Uh, There are oftentimes augments. It may be a different polyethylene component or a larger box to accommodate um, a varus valgus constrained type implant or even a hinged knee implant. Those are all. Those are all implants that are more commonly used in a revision setting. Uh, not to say that you couldn't have a complex primary that required it, but typically, right. if you saw those, you would think this person has revision. And in addition to that, you want to look for the scar on the knee. Do they have more than one scar? You know, does um, the tissue look like it's been operated on several times? And again, back to the history, what did the patient tell you?
0: Right. Okay, cool. Yeah, I was wondered because you mentioned it, and I was like, oh, I wonder. But, you know, that makes perfect sense, you know, um, what you just said. And and so next, I guess what I want to move forward to is um, the diagnosis or kind of the workup. Once, we, once we've hit this point, you know, we, the patient has come in, we've done our physical exam, and we have a, a suspicion that it's a prosthetic joint infection. How does the workup and the diagnosis go from there?
1: Yeah, great question. So typically at that point, I want to talk to the patient, tell them that I have a suspicion for uh, infection, you know, and I try and tell them, do I have a low suspicion? Do I have a high suspicion? And then I just tell them, you know, that I typically at this juncture, I'll get more lab work. And that comes kind of in two forms in uh, total knee replacements. You want to get serum lab work. So you want to get blood and you want to check CRP and sed rate. Those are inflammatory markers, white count is not terribly helpful. Obviously, if it's super elevated, then that would cue you in that maybe this person has a more serious infection that could be in, you know, involving other parts of their body. But um, you know, they can have a, a very infected total knee and have a pretty normal bite count. Um, additionally, I like to get synovial fluid. I think in the total knee replacement patient, especially if they have a large effusion, it's, it's fairly straightforward to get fluid. It's not that difficult. Um, and that you can get an answer from that pretty quickly. Um, and we can talk about the different tests that we've run on the synovial fluid. And there's a couple other serum tests we can run. But, but those, are kind of the, those are kind of the two main things. So for, from the serum side of things, uh, you, you, you really want to get the CRP and the sed rate. And depending on what that number is and how far out from their sentinel surgery, that'll help you understand what their risk level is for an infection.
0: Right. What would be the difference, I guess, between uh, an acute and versus a chronic and I guess the time frame versus the
1: serum markers? Right. So for, for an acute, uh, for a chronic infection, and we typically use a six week marker uh, as a cutoff for that. So for patients who had surgery greater than six weeks ago, uh, they would fall into a chronic category. And that's true for the hip and the knee. And, and so that was the, that was the cut off that was chosen. And so that, that patient has a total knee and, and it's, um, it's greater than six weeks. The, the CRP greater than 23.5 is, is the number we're using right now. That is okay. concerning for, and that's milligrams uh, per deciliter. That's concerning for an infection. And then a sed rate greater than 46.5 is concerning. And those are that's on the that's on the knee side. The numbers are a little bit different for total hip. And I you know, I don't I really don't want you to get bogged down in the numbers. These are things that have changed uh, and they could change in the future as we understand them more. But and this is certainly something you could you could look up easily as well. But those are um, those are kind of where we're at right now.
2: Okay. And so as far as also when you just tap in the, the knee joint um for these uh knees that have uh prosthesis in it i know at my home institution we we use a, a certain type of uh pretty much we, we use a certain type of uh what am i trying to say here there, there is a certain type of way we have to tap it it's not like the
1: standard to, uh, like we would for a patient with a, a naive knee with no right. so you're no prob- art. <clears throat> you're probably testing testing with Synovasure uh, testing. Yeah, and so that's that is um, a great uh, it's a, it's basically a great thing in our armamentarium now in the total joint world that we can send it to a special lab that will test uh, kind of in a more thorough way and for certain and certain inflammatory markers in the synovial fluid. And they understand the cutoffs and they can give us a positive or negative uh, in a much more accurate way. And they can run PCR analysis. Um, And so CDI uh, Diagnostics is the name of that lab. And and basically, uh, you know, you're going to be looking at alpha-defensin and they're going to run a leukocyte esterase. uh, And and they'll do other things as well. They'll do cultures and sensitivities and... um, and they'll do a, uh, I believe they'll do a synovial CRP if you request it. There's, they have a whole, um, there there is a, th- I think three different ways you can you can order that test. But uh, depending on what your suspicion is, and they'll they'll, um, there's a whole uh, bank of tests they'll run on the, the fluid. But yeah, that's 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 absolutely correct. And I think if you're if you're gonna aspirate a toe joint replacement. You should absolutely try and use this lab if you can. I think that, that it's a more sensitive way of catching some of these difficult to diagnose infections.
2: Okay, and I'm just curious, how long does it take for that you know that type of uh, lab result to come back? Is it does it take a couple of days,
1: or uh, like how soon are you getting these results with the sure Yeah, it, it comes back pretty quickly. Uh, it's certainly not the same day to send out to send it out. And FedEx will pick it up, and I think it comes back uh, within three or four days. Don't quote me on that. They'll send you an email. So if you, once you get into practice, you create an account, and they'll send you an email and let you know what the results are. And then they'll they'll follow. They have follow up emails and let you know. You know, I think it's at the three day mark you get that email. They have follow up emails which let you know what the final culture results are because they hold it for at least fourteen days to make sure they catch any um, indolent or slow-growing organisms or fungi
0: hmm. okay do, do you always uh do you always use do those like adjuvant labs like the leukocyte esterase and il-6 or i know you just said it, it comes with this special test but if you're you know you know you're doing it your i guess if you're a, a resident or something or and and you had to Aspirate the knee joint. Is this something that we should always be getting almost every time along with, you know, the white count and the PMNs, Or is this something that, you know, you don't need every single time?
1: Well, I, I never say that. I never say always, <laughs> but I think as often as you can, it's helpful. And you, as a resident, I would talk to your, I would talk to the arthroplasty attendings there and kind of see what their preferences are. But because these, these labs are not free, but uh, I think in my practice, in my hands, if the patient comes into clinic and I aspirate their knee, I'm gonna send it for these labs as well, just because they're so powerful. It gives you so much information. And it's not just knowing whether or not a patient is infected, it's knowing what the organism is. I think if I could leave you with one piece of information today, it's that understanding what the organism is and what the sensitivities of that organism are drastically change the outcomes for patients regarding clearance of an infection or return of an infection. If you understand what antibiotics to give a patient and you're not just giving broad-spectrum antibiotics, you're not just giving them vancomycin because, well, that's what you give them because they have an infection, then you're more likely to get rid of that infection with a revision. And so I think, you know, anytime you stick a needle in the patient, it's painful and it's not very pleasant. So you want to try and get, you want to try and get as much information with that fluid as you possibly can and and I don't like coming back and doing it again so if I draw the fluid and I'm able to get some fluid which sometimes can be a challenge in some patients I like to send it for everything I can and try and get as much information in the grand scheme of things you know revision is a is quite a costly endeavor for our healthcare system and so spending a little bit of money on a lab that's probably going to give you the right answer uh it's it's in my mind a no-brainer
2: Okay. Yeah, that actually makes a lot of sense because if anyone has ever tried to tap uh, a septic knee, it is not fun for uh, the patient at all. They they don't like <laughs> you right at that moment. They are not very happy with you. No. That's um, right. on, on that, so it's just curious. I know we're talking about knees currently, but um, does the worked up change at all for you if it's instead of a, a knee that we're uh, worried about is it. so it's a hip that's had uh, that has hardware in it. Is there any any changes, anything different that you're looking for?
1: You know, all the things we talked about before with the history and the past medical history. I think that's all the same, right? Uh, but certainly your physical exam. You know, you're 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 wanting to assess the wound. You're wanting to check for range of motion. You're wanting to check for fluctuance and you're getting plain radiographs. And I would say, really, the the, the only difference would be um that your your lab you know your lab levels may change a little bit what you would consider to be an acceptable level um may be a little bit different in a hip it may the numbers may be a little bit uh lower Does that make they sense? may be
0: they may be lower in the uh in the in hip the knee in the hip replacement okay right. As far as like the
1: white count from the. Well, from the well what, you're, what you're willing, what you're willing to accept for the CRP and rate, the synovial markers. Sorry, the serum markers. And so, so the numbers, the numbers change a little bit, depending on what study you read. And, and so that's, that's the only thing that may change and kind of how I'm making a decision. Um, but otherwise it's what we've talked about so far is, is applicable to the hip. Okay. okay. And, and,
2: on, and on that as well. Because uh, this is another thing when when you're uh, reading the literature, it seems like the, the criteria, uh, you know, it, it kind of changes, depends on, on what, you know, piece of literature you're looking at. Is there any any piece of, I, I guess, what's the, the criteria that you feel is most uh, valuable for you clinically as far as uh, diagnosing a periprosthetic uh, joint infection?
1: Yeah, I I think that unfortunately there's not. I mean, if a patient has a draining sinus, that's a major criteria that they have an infection. I I would I would encourage you both to look at the Musculoskeletal Infection Society. Um, you know, they have a major and minor criteria for diagnosing peripheral yeah. joint infections, and that's something that will get asked on test. Uh, and so. And you will get, you'll get pimped on that for sure. So right. no, knowing what your major criteria are and knowing what your minor criteria are are important for helping you manage these patients. And so you have to piece all that together. But the answer to your question is there's not one piece of information. I mean, if they have a positive culture, or a couple positive cultures, or if they have um, so two separate positive cultures, or if they have a draining sinus tract, then they have an infection by, by definition or they're at least colonized. But otherwise, it's going to be a combination of these things. It's going to be a combination of an ESR or a sed rate. Uh, perhaps their synovial white blood cell count is elevated, or they have an elevated um, number of uh, percent nucle- uh, percent of polymorphic uh, PMNs, uh, or perhaps it's that you know you get in there and things don't look quite right, um, or you just got one positive culture, but you got a couple of these other things. So more common than not, it's a combination. Um, and so I, I wouldn't say there's one, um, there, there's you know one end-all be-all because if it were only that sample, it would be this would be easy.
0: <laughs> right, right. It'd be it'd be something easier. But so the the major criteria that you just said was was the sinus tract, and then the the pathogens from two or more samples, and then the other ones were a combination of the minor criteria. Right. Okay. So
1: if you so there are six minor criteria, and if you have four of the six minor criteria, then then you can say based on that information that the patient has an infection. So one of the minor criteria is an elevated CED rate. So so the by this di, by this definition, they use a cutoff of thirty for CED rate or a CRP elevated CRP of greater than ten. And so the numbers I told you earlier were for total knees, but this is again uh, for total hips. And so certainly if um, you know if you're going by this. By this um, definition, then the numbers are a little bit lower. Um, Elevated synovial white blood cell count greater than 1, you know, 1,100 cells per microliter or greater than, and that's for knees, and then greater than 3,000 for hips. An elevated synovial PMN count of greater than 80% for hips or greater than 64 for knees. If you find prevalence in the affected joint, if you see a pathogen on one culture or if you, if you have greater than it's a five by five. So if you have greater than five PMNs per high power field in five high power fields hmm. from an intraoperative frozen section, then then that's one of the criteria. So those are the six minor criteria.
0: Okay. Yeah, I think that's perfect. I think uh I think you covered that well. Um so I guess we'll we can move on to kind of how do we manage these uh, different, these different infections, like these uh, periprosthetic infections. Now I was reading up on it, and I know, or at least I, I read that the the timing, of course, uh, plays a role in the management. Um, so I guess, uh, how, how would you, how do you go about managing this? Or is there like an algorithm that you think of in your head? Or and how do you manage the, the patient with this, this joint infection?
1: Right. Well, I think you've got several different options uh, for doing that. And I know there are different types of infections and then there are different recommendations for those. I would say that in general, you're trying to decide if this is an acute infection or if this is a chronic infection. I think that your ability to clear an acute infection with an irrigation and debridement is, you know, it's, it's possible. You can do that. If you catch, if you catch the right patient, you do a thorough debridement and a modular component exchange. So for a knee, that means taking out the polyethylene component and really washing out the knee. And there are different adjuncts you can use in surgery to try and wash out the knee more efficiently uh, or effectively, I should say. Um, and that's a whole other discussion. But if you, if you do a thorough irrigation and debridement and you do a modular component exchange and the patient has an infection, it's less than six weeks. Then you you make them clear, and they need IV antibiotics for six weeks as well. Um, now it's really helpful to have positive intraoperative cultures, and to have to know which organism is and to know what it's sensitive to. That goes back to what I told you earlier. So I think I think that is extremely valuable information in increasing your uh, success rate. But even still, you know, you're, it's not 100% success. So just because you, it's less than six weeks and you watch out and you have the right culture and, and, the, and you know what the bacteria is sensitive to, that doesn't mean that you're going to have, that you're going to clear that infection. And um, <clears throat> so then in the patient who has a chronic infection and they are a good host, meaning they don't have a draining sinus, they don't have a lot of other medical comorbidities, and if you know the organism, you've, you've gotten a fluid sample, you know the organism, you know what antibiotics to give, then I think that's a person who may be a candidate for a single-stage revision. And so what I mean by that is you go in, you take out the implants that are currently there and infected, then you debride thoroughly, do several rounds of irrigation, you could add betadine, you can add hydrogen peroxide, you can use acetic acid, Uh, And these are different things that you can try as well as copious amounts of irrigation. And again, the thing I said at the beginning, which is debridement, you truly have to try and get rid of any bone uh, that may be dead or necrotic or harboring infection, get rid of all the cement in the knee. Uh, And then once you've done a thorough debridement, you essentially are going to close the wound, get rid of all of your drapes, all of the implants that you've used, everything that's contaminated goes away. And then a new drape comes down you rescrub, you, re- you re-gown, you redrape, and uh, you've got fresh instruments, and then you put in fresh uh, implants, you know, with antibiotic cement and IV antibiotics for six weeks. And uh, this has been done in Europe, um, and and they've had success with it there. And the question has always been, could we do it here, and could we have success with it? And uh, There have been there's there been a multi center uh, study that's been going on, and uh, I haven't I haven't heard the most recent data on um, where they're at, but it'll be interesting, interesting to see when that data comes out, uh, where, where we fall on that, where you know where we end up at. My, my own personal belief is that if you choose the right patient, and like I talked about, you know that they're, good, they have, they're a good candidate for surgery for a single stage, then I think your outcomes are going to be comparable to doing a two-stage. But again, that comes back to choosing the right patient. Right um, now, I think if they're chronic and you know they're not the right patient, I think you need to you need to do our the tried and true two stage exchange. So that means you go in, you do the first part of that procedure I just described, where you debride and you get rid of all infectious material, and then you put in, if if possible, put in an antibiotic spacer, uh, preferably for knees an articulating spacer versus a static spacer. Uh, which is a which is a drug eluding cement, um, and and most most arthroplasty surgeons will mix up their own cement and add antibiotics to it, uh, and, and and preferably antibiotics that again the bacteria is sensitive to if you know that, and then come back uh, after six weeks of IV antibiotics once you've followed you know serial CRP and rate, right, if that's something that you believe in. Follow that, and then come back when the wound looks quiescent and the patient has recovered, and do a stage two revision where you take out the antibiotic spacer and you put in a revision knee implant.
0: Right. Okay. And and uh, in the patient that has that like acute infection, um, how I was reading in some some places are saying or some articles were saying that you could consider like the femoral stem exchange. If it was, if it's like, you know, two weeks post-op, is that something that you, we kind of see a lot or do more people kind of like just leave that uh, thermal stem in there and just change the the modular components?
1: So you're saying on the hip replacement patients? Right, right, yes. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that whatever you can take out and uh, easily without creating um, bone loss, without creating a bigger problem is nice. I, I don't know what the data says on that. Uh, you know, I don't know if we know the answer to that question. Right. Um, typically if I'm going back on a patient who I suspect has an acute infection and it's less than six weeks, um, then, then I'm gonna, and I, and I think I can easily get the, sorry, if I'm going back on a patient who's less than six weeks, I'll, I'll try and do the washout and then do the IV antibiotics uh, as previously discussed. Yes,
2: sir, and and just because we we kind of mentioned it um, on the two stage revisions, um, does the does the antibiotic antibiotic spacer serve any role other than uh, the antibi- just for antibiotics and helping clear the infection? Is there any other reason to have that uh, particular type of uh, spacer in, yeah. the, in between the two surgeries?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think that, number one, you one of the bigger problems that you'll see as you do more of these cases is not just clearing the infection. I mean, clearing the infection is a hard enough problem, but you also have the problem of the soft tissues. And the soft tissues around the knee are not very forgiving. And oftentimes, you run into a problem where you either have to bring a flap up, not oftentimes, occasionally you run into a problem, you have to bring a flap up or you have to use a skin graft. Um, and the soft tissue is often stiff and it's often non-compliant. And, and if you're able to put in an implant that is, again, a, a mobile spacer, a spacer that the patient can you know, articulate their knee and bend, I think that's a much better implant for the patient, number one, for function, number two, for pain and but number three it it helps maintain the the soft tissue uh, compliance if you will and allows for an easier revision when you come back static spacer revisions are harder than our mobile articulating spacers and um, i think also static spacers you know you can have motion there at the cement bone interface and that can cause more bone loss Uh, and so that, so in my in my hands, I much prefer an articulating spacer. Uh, as I think, for all those reasons, I think it's better.
2: Uh, I, I had to to bring that up. I remember, I mean, I, I might have been still in college, and I think that was my very first, you know, quote unquote, pimp question <laughs> was <laughs> the, what's the role of the uh, antibiotic spacer? And of course, I got it wrong. I'm like, oh yeah, it's antibiotic. Helping you know clear the clear the uh, infection, but uh, yeah. like you were saying, I think it, it, it plays just a large, maybe even larger of a role in uh, keeping the soft tissues uh, patent and and just kind of protecting that from that standpoint. So I had to bring it up just because I it brought me back to my uh, my younger days. I had to yeah. at least bring it up for a second. That's <laughs> a great point.
1: Yeah,
0: I have a question that I'm just generally curious to know the answer to. Uh, that I was reading. I was just trying to wonder why. I'm sure the, the explanation is very simple, um, but I was reading that an absolute contraindication to do an irrigation agreement in one of these patients is, is like sinus tract formation uh, or inability to close the wound. Why Why is, I guess, sinus tract formation and contraindication to
1: do an IND? Well, I think what we've learned over the years is that these infections are really hard to clear. I think Once the bacteria create a glycocalyx, which is essentially a wall that protects them from the penetration of antibiotics and and also makes it harder for us to to breed them off of the bone and the metal implant. And once they get into the um, canals of the bone, once they've moved into the matrix and up into the bone, it's extremely difficult to eradicate them from that tissue and from that metal. And a sinus tract is is a sign that this is a chronic infection. And we're not just talking about a dehiscence of a wound, we're talking about a true sinus tract. Right. So once the wound has healed and there has been an opportunity for infection to work its way out of the joint and create a sinus tract, that is a sign to the clinician that this patient has a deep-seated chronic infection that is not going to be cleared with a simple washout, I and mean, you can't just go in there and wash the wash the tissues, and the bacteria is gone. This this bacteria is everywhere, and it's in it's socked in. You've got to take it out, and so uh, that's why an aggressive debridement. Um, I mean, the bacteria can can live on the back of the implant, they can live within the bone, uh, they're in the scar tissue. It's everywhere, and and once you do a couple of these cases, you'll start to understand that there's no way you could possibly fully irrigate and clean every every place they could be. And um, it gets a little depressing, uh, yeah. you know, but but I think if they've got a sinus tract or and that's a sign they have, they have a chronic infection. Now, certainly the other question you asked is if they have a soft tissue defect, well, you got to be able to clear, you know, you have to be able to cover a, uh, uh, the wound in order to... Or any kind of infection; otherwise, they'll just get recolonized. And, right. um, but, but yeah, sinus track is a contraindication.
0: Okay, cool. Yeah, no, because I was I was reading that, and I was like, I wonder. That's what I thought, but you know, I just wanted to to, to double check with you uh, to see if you know, just to just to get your your uh, experience on it. Um, another question I have, I guess, before we wrap up here, uh, I know this is very rare for these treatment options to to happen, but, you know, are there any times where we kind of start to consider an arthrodesis or amputation or anything, or, you know, like a
1: resection arthroplasty? Absolutely. Yeah. I think, you know, as, as you get to know the patients better and you talk about the various options, um, these, these, this topic usually comes up at some point, I think in a, so for patients who come in and they, they had a well-functioning joint and then they got an infection, the answer is usually the this, this, this salvage this joint. You know, we're going to do a single stage washout, uh, you know, single stage exchange, or we're going to do a two stage exchange, or, or this, if they're a candidate for the IND that we discussed, then you'll do that. Um, I, think, I think you need to have uh, a frank discussion with patients who have had multiple failed revisions. So they've had one or two or three failed attempts at uh, clearance of an infection you need to start to talk to them about the various options and and while arthrodesis is an option I, I, you know I, I guess I would say for patients who are absolutely against amputation and who have failed multiple revisions and they say I don't want to do that again but I don't want an amputation then that, then arthrodesis or a resection arthroplasty is an option uh, with the resection arthroplasty they can't uh, very efficiently bear weight through that extremity now some patients do but it's not a great uh, ambulating extremity for them uh, with a, for a knee. Now with the hips, some, some patients are able to do that a little better, but um, for the most part, most patients are not going to, especially the patient population that gets these kind of problems. Now for a patient who is, uh, you know, who has a recurrent infection and we can't clear it, I typically will have a very frank discussion with them about trying, an, about doing an amputation. Um, and the reason for that is, you know, even even though no surgery is a guarantee and no surgery is 100% predictable, it is absolutely more predictable than uh, a third or fourth or you know whatever reattempt at a uh, clearing an infection around the total joint replacement. Because with an amputation, you're getting you're removing the infected tissue, you're you know you're creating hopefully healthy tissue flaps and you can get the patient fitted for a prosthesis. Um, now granted, you need to be realistic with patients. You need to tell them, you know, if they're debilitated, they may not ambulate with the prosthesis, but you need, to, you need to talk to them about how this could radically change their life, about how they can go from spending most of their time in the hospital or with a pick line getting IV antibiotics to getting back to doing the things that they're passionate about. Um, and having, having an infected, painful you know, extremity that doesn't work, that's stiff and straight anyway, um, is of no, is of little value to them. Um, but, you know, getting back to doing normal things, uh, I think has a lot of value.
2: Absolutely. Well, Dr. Vickers, I think this has been really helpful. I mean, I I, I think we touched a lot of high points, uh, dealing with, uh, periprosthetic infections. And I'm sure not only the listeners and, uh, Cody and I but I'm pretty sure everybody will be able to gain a lot of knowledge from this and I really appreciate your time but before we end we always like to give our speakers a chance to uh, share a way for our listeners to be able to reach out with them if they choose to it could be something like some social media outlet or anything like that do you have uh, some kind of uh, social media maybe that our our
1: listeners could reach you by? Sure yeah so I'm, uh, I'm not super active on social media. Perhaps I should be. Uh, <laughs> haven't, I haven't had a lot, a lot of time for that lately with the new baby in the house. But I'll give you my email address. And if, uh, if anyone has uh, questions uh, or concerns potentially with something we've said here today, <laughs> uh, they can uh, shoot me an email. It's my last name. So Vickers, V I C K E R S dot josh at gmail dot com. And I'm happy to. Uh, but you know, if you shoot me a question with your phone number, we can chat over the phone or, or I can shoot you an email back. Um yeah, I think I think uh going through residency and fellowship, you know, those are tough times in your life. You just gotta keep your eye, you know, keep keep your uh, eye on what's important and focus on what's important and know that um why you're there and that you know, it's gonna get better.
2: <laughs> right. I tell myself that almost every other week, Dr. Vickers. Yeah, it, <laughs> it will get always better. get better.
0: Yeah, you know, you, you know, Jay Jay cries himself to sleep some some nights. You know, so uh, that's kind of kind of how that goes. <laughs> yeah,
1: that's okay because I wake up. That third year, and you'll be, you'll be solid. <laughs> yeah,
2: exactly. Uh, Doctor Vickers, thank you for coming on to the show today. I want to thank all the listeners for listening, uh, and uh, just really appreciate your time and and this this knowledge on us. I, I really appreciate the talk because I mean I learned a lot uh this has always been an area that i've just felt a little uh shaky in and i, I definitely feel a little bit more secure so thank you much
1: oh, great well thank you so much for having me it's been an absolute pleasure and uh and i uh, wish you guys the best
2: now we hope you guys enjoyed
0: this episode with dr vickers on periprosthetic infections subscribe if you have not subscribed yet and go and leave us a review in itunes and if you listen to this entire thing thank you so much for listening we know there are some audio issues here and there but Again, thank you all so much. Until next week, and I hope you guys enjoyed this bonus episode.